Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str. You have somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real, but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayek or uh, never mind. All right. Well, we are back. You didn't think we would be back, but we are back. Well, actually, you probably did think we'd be back because we told you we'd be back. And here we are for another episode of your favorite podcast, Stuff That's Real That You Didn't Know Is Real But Also Is Cool podcast with your hosts. I am Nick Thacker, and I'm here with my good friend, Kevin Tomlinson. Well, I'm not hey. here, but you're there. We're virtually and together here. together we are here. We're virtually here. Where are you here? Where is here for you today, sir? Right now, I am in Zelianople, Pennsylvania, which, which is just outside or not, of Pittsburgh. Is a real town. It is a real town. Stuff That's Real That You Didn't Know Is Real. <laughs> is it cool? <laughs> uh you know it's not a bad little town actually it's kind of a nice piece of americana here you know we came in for okay. independence day and so i don't know when this airs but you know, we were here the first part of july and got to watch a parade like an old school kind of small town parade you know and hanging out with family we're kind of that's awesome getting to that point where we're tired go. of hanging out with family and we think family's probably tired of hanging out with us but <laughs> benjamin franklin man food and company goes bad after three days yeah, so no, it's not that bad. We're, we this is a great place though. It's it's very uh, pretty here. Uh, you think of Pittsburgh. I've been to Pittsburgh a few times for conferences and stuff like that. And it's to me, it always seems like it's a little on the dreary side. But mm-hmm. then again, I I seem to always come during the winter. So right, everything's dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never been through that area before, but uh, I'm sitting in beautiful Hawaii. That means I'm inside in the air conditioned environment. Um, it's a good place to be, but it's a, probably a good place to visit and not a good place to live for me anyway. Yeah. I'm also lonely this time. Well, my family's all in Colorado where we're trying to move. So I'm just kind of sitting here pouting a little bit, but enough about me, enough about you. (laughs) I want to talk about carbon. I want to talk about carbon because yeah, carbon, which most people know is real and by itself isn't super cool. I mean, you know, all life is made from it, but I'm specifically going to talk about an allotrope of carbon. I just learned this word, but apparently an allotrope is this form you can have of carbons, right? So so we know that carbon comes in uh, like the graphite pencil lead stuff, real mm-hmm. soft, not translucent, can't see through it, it's opaque. And then of course, a diamond, which is the hardest material we know of, it's also clear. And so those are both pure carbon, but they're in different forms, right? So those are allotropes, two different allotropes of carbon. We used to think that was the only two, but now we know there are a bunch, at least five, at least the buckyballs or the mm-hmm. Buckminster Fullerene. <laughs> it's like a football kind of thing made out of 60 carbon atoms and you know all kinds of stuff. Anyway, there's a newer allotrope that we have recently discovered. And I say we, collective we, I had nothing to do with this. We discovered it in, in about two, the early 2000s and it's called graphene. 
And mm-hmm. it is pretty remarkable. And I know you've read about this. I've been reading about this. My dad actually is an engineer and, and his, his company works with graphene. They're trying to figure out how to make it cheaper, and mass produce it and things like that. But really, they're just studying it, seeing what it can do because it is really, really cool, man. It's, yeah. it's pretty remarkable. For anyone listening who might not know, this is, again, an allotrope. So it's pure carbon. It's just carbon atoms. But what makes graphene remarkable is that it's a single layer of graphite. So it's a yes. single layer of carbon atoms in a, like a it looks like a, a honeycomb, a hexagon structure, all laid out. It's, it's literally the first two-dimensional material we've ever discovered. Yeah. Um, which in and of itself, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And that's, I guess you could probably make a case. It's still technically three dimensional because it is in three dimensions, but it's considered the first two dimensional object we, or a material we've ever found. And while that alone is pretty cool, you know, it's just a blanket of atoms laying on a table. It's what these hexagonal rings of carbon can do that is pretty cool. And the answer to that question, what they can do is it seems like everything. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like these graphene sheets can do like literally anything. People do talk about it like plastic, you know, like anything that's plastic can be done with graphene. Basically, the way we talk about plastic is like, oh, you know, plastic is in everything. It's this oil-based product that we use for medical field and computing and all that technology stuff. And literally everything, plastic is there. Well, in some ways, graphene is similar. Like you can just use it as material. You shape it, use it as a sheet and all that. But it's considered a semiconductor because it's not quite a metal, but it behaves like one. It conducts electricity. And it turns out it conducts electricity like a thousand times more powerfully than normal copper conducts electricity. Yeah. Just that alone, you know, just the sheer ability to use it for extremely efficient and probably long distance cabling would make copper pretty much obsolete. The problem is we have to make this stuff a little bit cheaper. Graphene's not there yet. It's still pretty expensive. I mean, but it isn't Um, that expensive to make. I think the, the problem is the volume because actually the way they discovered it was they basically made it using scotch tape and like pencil graphite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the story. The guy was in his lab and he had scotch tape. That's how they, you know, they were kind of basically peeling it apart to make really thin sheets. And they were hoping to get a sheet of carbon atoms in this superstructure that was about 100 atoms thick, which again, that's still pretty thin in real life human eyeball terms, something you'd still need a microscope to see. And the scientist, and I'll get his name here, it's at the bottom of this article I'll post. The scientist, Andre Geim, Geim and Konstantin okay. Novoselov, I think was his assistant, I believe. And that literally, these flakes of graphite, and then fold it up and pull it apart to cleave it into even smaller layers. They just kept doing it. Yeah. Eventually, they realized what they assumed was that these little carbons would buckyball. They would turn into a little ball, or they would turn into a nanotube, which are these other allotropes we knew about. But it turns out they didn't. They formed into the honeycomb lattice and laid out flat and became a single atom thick. So you're exactly right. It's easy to create. And there's even in this article, it's like how to make graphene at home. And it's literally that. You just get a pencil that's Mm -hmm. made out of graphite, mostly, and you put scotch tape on it and you pull it apart and you just do all this stuff. The problem is you'll never... (laughs) Most people don't have access to a molecular microscope, electron microscope that can see one atom thick. Maybe um, most people, but some. Yeah, but it's a good reason to leave a bunch of pencil-covered scotch tape pieces on your, your kitchen counter for your uh, <laughs> spouse when they come home. Like, no, it's that's graphene. You better not throw that this away. This is science. It's very expensive stuff. <laughs> this is science. It's the scale. It's the volume. It's yeah. the expensive part, right? And they did make enough find, of it to we can make a cool suit out of it. Yeah, I remember when this was kind of a big story in like the 90s and early 2000s. Because I remember reading about how they found a way to make larger sheets of it using a common laser disc writer, a CD-ROM writer. So oh, okay. 
they would actually coat the CD-ROM in a liquid that was permeated with graphite, and then they would hit it with the CD-Writer laser, just put it in the drive, and they basically turned it upside down, right? They put it in the drive, and as the writing laser hit it and wrote every single track on that disc, it turned it into graphene, and they were able to just peel that sheet of graphene off and, and use it. So they actually did find a way to sort of mass produce it. Um, now, where it went from there, I have no idea. I, I haven't looked in on that in a long while, but I do know that it is like it's it's this miracle substance. Like it really is. About I mean, it really is, stuff. man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're they're talking about doing things like like making your clothes essentially into solar cells mm-hmm. that can also power your devices and in some cases even replace your devices. So there could come an age where if you have an iPhone, just being in your pocket recharges it. Right. And just yeah, the lack of electrical resistance with graphene makes it this almost like a superconductor. And except it, it just doesn't really need to be cooled to a superconductor at low temperature. It, it works at room temperature. So it's unbelievably efficient for electrical anything, fill in the yeah. blank. It's also really freaking strong. It's apparently yeah. like 200 times stronger than steel. And we're yeah. talking a sheet that you can't even see. One atom. Well, that brings in the, the optical the optical part of it, right? This is essentially, if you think about, generally speaking, the reason you can see through, you know, photons are, are more likely to go through something really thin than they are thick ones. Of course, that's not true. With thick glass, you can see through, but thin metal, you can't see through. So there's there's more to it than that. But yeah. because graphene is one atom thick, it's almost completely transparent. And this article states that it's so thin that it's almost completely transparent. It transmits about 97 to 98% of light through it. So, wow. I mean, it's more transparent than a window, <laughs> a single window wow. pane. I was reading about some of the applications and I don't know if they were doing this or if they were just talking about it as being like a potentiality, but they're saying they can use sheets of graphene over artwork to protect yep. the color and the integrity of the art and just otherwise leave it open to air. So they could put it over the Mona Lisa and it would last forever, essentially, because the graphene is so strong, it protects it, but it still lets light through. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. There's a lot of uses for it. This is nuts. They're using it to make like super capacitors, which effectively replacing batteries and things because they're smaller and lighter. They can be charged almost instantly. Right. So I need to look into whether Apple's using it or not, but I know Anchor, the company Anchor, has yeah, a they make the of, chargers and stuff. Yeah, they make chargers and they have a set of like AirPod competitors that are made with graphene elements for their speakers themselves, like the actual diaphragm for the transmitting sound. But I think Apple may be using graphene in their capacitor that's used for charging the AirPods, I think. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so, it's just super efficient. Yeah, that's very cool. I've always been fascinated by that whole thing. I think there's so much potential for this stuff. And I think it really just comes down to people getting the funding to push forward with creating the technology. So having access to it, I think the actual graphene part making it isn't really what's keeping people from innovating. I think there's something else that makes it expensive to work with. Maybe it's just the, you know, you have graphene. That's the easy substance to create. Now you have to figure out how to do things like if you want to create solar panels out of this stuff, how do you do it? What's the process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and effectively, if you're taking scotch tape and, and rubbing it on a pencil, you have to do that a lot to get a decent-sized chunk of graphene, a sheet of graphene, I should say. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's just the laws of diminishing return comes in. It's a lot of work, most likely, but I don't think it's going anywhere. I think this is something we'll see a lot more of. It seems like the applications are so powerfully motivating in and of themselves that 
scientists are going to figure this one out pretty quick. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, I think, good, I good think it's definitely leading somewhere. I think this in combination with advances that we're making in like quantum computers and things like that. I mean, I, I think a lot of sci-fi stuff that we've always kind of rolled our eyes at is going to become a lot more possible in the very near future because of stuff like this. So absolutely. Yeah. Very cool, man. Cool stuff. Very, very cool. What you talking about today? You have something cool for us? No, we got to slip out of future tech and glide back in time. Because <laughs> uh, the story I'm, I'm bringing in is something called, I've heard it called, it's got several names, actually. Some people call it the Mystery Tower of Newport. Okay. Uh, but I like the name Viking Tower. That's how I first learned about it. And I kind of stumbled across this when I was researching Vikings in North America for my first Kotler book. Uh-huh. And yep, um, I remember that. And I think Josh Gates has been to this thing for uh, his Expedition Unknown and things like that. But so this thing is located in Newport, Rhode Island. The museum in Newport officially refers to it as an old mill, but nobody can explain one who built it, two when it was built, or three why anyone would build such a massive mill. Huh. So there's a lot of questions around this thing, and the article that I shared it's got a whole list of like some of the groups they think may have built it. Some people think that Vikings built it in 1150. Other people think the Knights Templar built it in 1398. Some people think the Chinese built it in 1421 or the Portuguese in 1501. And then hold on, well, why the Chinese? What, what I don't what? know. They, you know, that's that's the <laughs> like all these other part, ones but, make sense. It's like okay, so the Vikings would have come over about 1150. Knights Templar. Okay, yep. That okay. The Portuguese. Yep. Okay. England. Wait, the Chinese. Yeah. Like how they get that's there? what I want to know. <laughs> like at what point did they decide that this has to be Chinese made? Is it because it was cheaper and yeah. uh, more energy efficient? <laughs> I'm not sure. This um, is 1421. This is like you know you got barely pilgrims over there, right? This is barely, barely, barely into early American history, early modern American history, but you've got Native no, it's Americans. Before the, it's before the discovery of America in 1421. Okay, that's right. Oh, sorry. I'm, yeah, I got my dates wrong. Yeah, 1421. So you got essentially no one but Native Americans here, and they're everywhere. So you would think that we would have some record of the Chinese stopping by going, hey, we're the Chinese. Don't mind us. We're building this you know, freaky alien tower. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I'd love to know more about that. That's pretty interesting. The Chinese they, stopped by. They built the, the tower. 30 minutes later, you wanted another tower. But um, bump. Yeah. Now, but so <laughs> it, others have declared that it had to have been the English who built it or the Americans, American colonists built it. But the question has never fully been answered. So it's a 450 ton structure built of natural stone in Newport, Rhode Island. I lean toward. I don't know why the Vikings would build it, frankly, but I lean towards the Vikings because I love the idea of it. For one thing, it's that would make it the oldest known structure in North America, perhaps. Yes, but I'm yeah, also right. South America is still yeah. They're building huge pyramids at this the, point. The Mayans, <laughs> and yeah, but you know, I'm also kind of keen on the idea of the Knights Templar building it, and that would gel with a theory about the one they've got a TV show, Oak Island. Oak Island, thank you. So yeah. there's a theory about Oak Island that the Knights Templar showed up there and buried a bunch of treasure, including the Ark of the Covenant and a whole bunch of other mythical and mysterious, or not the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail. The Holy uh, Grail, the Capstone so, of Giza, the sort of. <laughs> then again, there's the, also all, been all people claiming ones. that the original works of Shakespeare are buried there and things like that. So who knows? But I like the idea of it. You know, maybe the Templar Knights building this thing and maybe doing this stuff in Oak Island. 
But I also like the idea of the Vikings having come here and done it. So there's no real explanation as to what the tower is for. The best explanation anyone came up with was that it was an old mill. But when you really look at it, I mean, if you really start checking it out, there's no rhyme or reason to the idea that it would be a mill. I mean, there's no an inefficient way to build a mill. You know, yeah. just you got these towers. Well, you go, go look at a picture of it if you're just listening to us. But, you know, it's got these arches all the way around it. So yeah. essentially the leg, it's on legs. It's like a big water cistern standing on legs. Yeah. And if there wasn't a, a uh, set of, what do you call the uh, the propellers or whatever, wind turbines, if there was something like that on top of it, it's, oh, point, yeah. it's been gone for <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of years. So there's no real way to know what this was for. It but, looks like there's a window on one side of it. Is that what that is? Yeah. So there's actually a picture of this thing with the sun shining through it. And it's in the caption okay. says, Winter Solstice Sunrise shines directly through two of the tower's windows. It just happened to line up for the Winter Solstice Sunrise. So interesting. take that for what you will, but it is kind of interesting when things like that happen. It's typically not a coincidence when something like typically that Typically, that's not an accident. Somebody yeah. knew something about celestial movement and all that. It doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, aliens or, you know, but yeah, there's something interesting as far as something meaningful about why it was built here in this arrangement with the window on this side. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like it's not symmetrical, right? Right. It's yeah. The window's not right in the middle. That, yeah. That happens off to one side. So, of course, the landscape and everything here has changed so much over this past several hundred years that there may have been contextual clues about what this thing was for in the landscape itself, but those would be long gone. Yeah, that's right. But there's, I found this sentence I thought was interesting. The tower was a favorite subject for early artists and souvenir hawkers. Its lumpy likeness plastered onto shaving mugs, spoons, serving trays, beer steins, thimbles, teapots, decorative plates, and candy dishes. (laughs) And it was always labeled the old stone mill, but that was a polite fiction. Most people believe that it was really something else. And by the 20th century, every time it appeared on a postcard or anything else, it was referred to as ancient Viking tower. So, and they had a contest in 1925 to name it. And the winner of the contest in 1925 was hotel Viking. Now, of course, if we had that same contest day, it would be, it would be Billy hotel. Hotel, <laughs> hotel face. <laughs> so, yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, very cool. I love stuff like this because, one, because we can't carbon date stone. Unless we tear this thing down and find some, like, plant material or... Uh, yeah, it has to be organic matter or something. Right. Some, we somewhere in to, it that would show where the stone came from, but... Exactly. Yeah. We'd never be able to date it without destroying it, basically. But I am a big fan of the theory of ancient America. And we're starting to see more and more evidence that the Americas are much older, that there was a culture here well before anything we have documented history for, well beyond even what we think of as Native Americans or Aztecs or Mayans from South America and Central America. There are very strong hints that essentially buried under the top layer of our country is a much more ancient version of America. I actually, there's been quite a few things found and some questionable things. So the trouble here is that, especially back in like the 20s, people love to play pranks. They love hoaxes, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. when I was researching stuff for Quelo Medallion, I found lots of articles about Viking artifacts and structures throughout North America. Nothing down into Colorado, the way I set the story up, but Minnesota, I mean, that's not exactly coastal. 
Right. So you had things like people have found Viking runes carved into stones. Mm -hmm. There's an area, I think this is in Minnesota, where they have like a hole. Basically, it's like a, not a cave, but it's like, you know, it's above ground, but it's sort of a stone outcropping. And when they looked into it, they discovered that there were etchings on the walls and those etchings look an awful lot like Viking runes. So there's also the rune stone which was found, I think, in Nova Scotia. Yeah, uh, that sounds right. Yeah. So there's things like that all throughout that region of North America. It's entirely possible that the Vikings crossed the Atlantic, even in small boats. That was always the argument, was that Viking ships were too small to survive a trip over the Atlantic. But turns out they were pretty good at that stuff because, well, it, for it one turns thing, out they were tough um, as hell. Yeah. <laughs> in the same breath, they'll turn around and explain that Polynesians expanded over the Pacific, basically yeah. the entire Pacific, using small boats, literal canoes. Right. Uh, and you know, I've seen some of these, uh, some of the bigger ones, the Wayfinder type stuff. You know, they're they're not small, but you're not talking about a cruise ship here. You can't put a bunch of coconuts on this thing. Like it's going to be pretty limited with how much water and stuff you can bring. So these guys figured it out how to yeah. do canoe travel effectively. Right. Exactly. So you can't discount it. We've got historical evidence for that sort of thing. So yeah. So. Very fascinating. It's more evidence of the ancient America theory. We actually have uncovered like DNA evidence of humans in the Americas like 12,000 plus years ago. So we're definitely getting into an era of discovering that we have more history than we thought in this country, in this continent, at least. The country may only be a couple hundred years old, but the continent had people on it so, you know, thousands of years ago. So it's cool. Countries man. typically I, I, don't, uh, don't last too long. And yeah. humanity typically does last pretty long, it seems like, is, is what we're learning. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, by the way, in 1993, they were able to do some carbon-14 dating. I read that. They got some air out of the mortar. Yeah. Yeah. The test of the tower's mortar was undertaken by a team of researchers from Denmark and Finland, and the results suggest a probable date of production of the mortar between 1635 and 1698. But the trouble with that is it could have been altered in any number of ways over the centuries. So, yeah, it could have been reconstructed and fixed up or been, you know, anything like yeah. that. So, we haven't. In carbon dating, is not perfect, you know, especially since there's not like a carcass to use. The source material is somewhat infallible and the methodology is somewhat infallible as well. There's always a, a range. Yeah. You know, it's a little easier to date something and say, okay, well, it's millions and millions of years old, and there's a range of a million years on either direction. You know, you're talking, well, what I want to know if it was a Tuesday when this thing was built. Like, we're just never going to yeah. know. You know what I mean? Exactly. We're never going to be able to now, figure that out accurately. I have found a brief mention of the Chinese here and where that theory comes from. So, okay. there's an author named Gavin Menzies. He wrote a book called 1421, The Year China Discovered America. And he says that the tower was built by a colony of Chinese sailors, basically from the junk of Zing He, who was voyaging here. And they built it as either a lighthouse or an observatory to determine the longitude of the colony. And that is an interesting idea. So now, <laughs> uh, so he says, Minzi's claim that the tower closely matches designs used in Chinese observatories and lighthouses elsewhere. However, oh. these claims have been debunked, it says. So. Okay. I was going to say, I mean, I'm just not knowing, you know, I'm not a Chinese architect or historian, but it doesn't seem to look Chinese to me. There's nothing particularly Chinese about this, although it's hard to say if it was, that's just the stone structure and then there was wood beams or something over it that would give it more of that iconic dynastic Chinese look. But I don't yeah. know. I'm not going to agree or disagree, but if it's been debunked, then great. 
Yeah. I did also read that it, it seems maybe there was a bigger fort or something around it, or maybe a larger tower that was blown up during the Revolutionary War. Yep. In the 90s, the University of Rhode Island found that they studied it, and their hypothesis is that it actually was an observatory because they found several astronomical alignments. So okay. at the summer solstice, the setting sun would shine through the, quote, west window. We heard about the winter solstice uh, sunrise. The angle from the east window through the west window is about 18 degrees south of west, which is the southern extreme of moonsets during what is known as the lunar minor standstill. So in all of them, the smaller windows align with like certain significant stars. So they think that this could be accidental, but because there's so much of it, that it is an odd coincidence if it is indeed coincidence. So yeah, I mean, it impressive. could be could be some kind of observatory. It could also be there's a particular date that they're trying to lock into history using geology and architecture. Yes. You know, we right. see this a little bit with Giza and the pyramids yep. there. The Great Pyramid is you know, all kinds of symbolism there. And we don't necessarily know if it's just because, well, hey, they're just showing off their astrological skills. It seems pretty clear to me that they're actually trying to, to tell us about some date in the past. You know, right. whether that was when Kafer was, or, was, or the was buried or I entombed mean, or... Yeah, so we always bring up Graham Hancock, but I, in his book, Magicians of the Gods, he talked about, if you were going to leave a note, if you knew that there was going to be a great cataclysm that was going to wipe out technology, that there would be thousands of years that passed, so anything written down would probably be lost. And so the only reliable source of sending a message would be stone. And if you had to construct a message out of stone that would stand the test of time, and what could only be understood by a people as intelligent as you were and advanced as you were, then something that indicates a specific date would probably be the way you'd go. So exactly. that could be the case here. So it's anyway, it's going to make a thrilling part of a future Kotler novel. I can assure you that. I'm thinking I might have to steal this one, too, and put it into a future <laughs> Harvey Bennett book. That's, yeah. that's a cool one, man. Yep. So anyway, yeah, that's good. my contribution for the week. <laughs> Well, two great contributions, I would think. Graphene and the Mystery Tower of Newport. Pretty cool reading if anyone wants to kind of dive into the rabbit hole there. We're going to, of course, post a couple of these links that we've used just as, as we found to be pretty good cursory overviews of each of these topics. But of course, they're not the only articles written about this stuff. Uh, we highly recommend getting into the rabbit hole with us. That's basically the first step on the path to becoming a thriller author is learning yeah. <laughs> how to research and learning when to stop researching and actually start writing. But uh, but this is all yeah. the fun part. This is all the research. Part, I, sh so. I should say, by the way, my research isn't done because we're currently in Pennsylvania. Newport, Rhode Island was already one of our destinations. And so we're going to be on that island. I told Kara just today that we're definitely checking this out. So Sweet. I I'm going to research I see some pictures of it. Yeah, man. Tell me what this thing looks definitely. like and figure it out for me. I'm going to have a complete resolution as to where this thing came from and what its purpose was by the time I leave that island, I promise you. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, thanks for being with us today. And like I said, you can find us online at stuffthatsreal.com. You can send us an email through hello at stuffthatsreal.com. And we want to hear your feedback on either the show, how Kevin looks, or if you have an idea for what we should cover next. Any of those three things I want to hear about. By all means, send us an email and maybe I'll air it live. <laughs> there you go. Looking forward to it. Uh, without further ado, we will get you back to your regular scheduled day. I uh, hope you're having a good one. 
Tune in next week for the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real, but also is cool podcast. Did I get that? I think I got it. I think I nailed it. it. I think I nailed Nailed it. it. I'm your host, Nick Thacker, and I'm with other host, Kevin Tomlinson. And until next time, we will see you around. Does it make sense? Until next time, we won't see you around. We will see you next time. We will see you around. Unless you see us coming. Unless I see you first. Something. (laughs) All right. Bye, everybody. Peace, everyone. Stuff that's real. Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com slash str.